We are starting a brand new series today, and I want to begin with a question, and the question is this. How many of you, when you were a kid, ran away from home at least one time? Would you raise your hands? That's quite a bit. It's a very, very common thing. Many of you experienced that, and I, I, I think that some of your stories would probably be pretty funny if we could hear them. Probably uh, your mom or your dad made you mad, and you ran. You know, when you're a kid, it's usually all about the away and not much about the two, right? Like you, you get to the end of the driveway or you make it to the end of your street and where are you going? What's, what's next? Some of your stories would probably be like the, the little boy who was riding his bike and it was loaded with stuff on the back and there was a policeman that noticed him riding around the block and then he saw him coming around again and and then that happened again and again. And after a while, the policeman stopped him and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm running away. And the policeman said, well, why do you keep going around the block? And the little boy said, because my mom won't let me cross the street. <laughs> now, some of you got farther than that, but you only stayed gone a few hours. I wondered how many of you, you ran away and you came back home and your parents never even knew you left, Right. <laughs> Here's another question. It's more serious. How many of you have ever run away from God? Now, running from God doesn't mean you pack your bags and you go somewhere, though maybe you did that. It's usually more about, I just know better how to run my life. Sometimes I want to do something and I don't want to feel guilty, so I quiet my conscience by deciding there must not be a God. That's what some people do. Sometimes I think there still is a God, but I decide he doesn't really care about what I do. I adjust my theology. I say, you know, that stuff is just all rules that people have made up. Some people, they still believe there's a God, and they still believe he holds us accountable, but they're just going to run anyway. It doesn't matter in the end. And we, we run for many different reasons. Maybe you ran from God into a relationship. Maybe your running involves some money that you wanted to make. Maybe when you were young, maybe you felt like God was nudging you towards a life of full-time service to him, some kind of ministry, and you thought, there is no way I'm going to be poor the rest of my life not doing that. And so you turned your back on God. You ran. Maybe for you it was just one particular issue. You didn't stop believing in God. You still kept going to church, but you had this one issue, and in that one area you said to God, God, you just keep your hands off this. And it's not that you don't keep praying. I mean, you're there running from God, and you still pray, especially when you get in trouble. But you don't pray prayers of surrender. You, you just pray for God's help. You just want God to fix some stuff. And for you, maybe it was like this. God, okay, I'm back. And God, I need you right now. But only in this one area, God, only here. Not over there, God. God, focus, focus here, God. I want you to help me right here, and then after you've helped me right here, then you, you can go away again. Sometimes people running from God keep coming to church. And the truth about you today is you're a runner. Now, we all run from God for basically the same reasons. For some of us, we just don't want to be told what to do. It's just rebellion. It's sheer defiance. For some of us, 
It's fear. We're afraid that if we surrender to God, we're going to miss out on some good things. We're going to miss out on some good people. For a lot of people, running from God involves a scenario like this. It's like you know that God doesn't want you involved with her because she's not a Christian, but you find yourself thinking, okay, I know, you know, anyone can become a Christian, but not anyone can be that hot. And so... I'm going to get in that relationship, and I'm going to work this all out, and then I'll bring her to church, and then I'll help her find Jesus. And God says, oh, you found a loophole. You're so smart. (laughs) Or maybe it's just the other way around. Maybe you say anyone can become a Christian, but not everyone can drive one of those, so I'm going to date him, and I'll work it all out later. We run. Another reason we run, this comes from something Philip Yancey said. He said, some of us confuse life with God. He said, life doesn't go so well, and, and so we, we think that means God isn't doing so well for us, and we blame God for how our lives have turned out, and we say, why would I want to do God's will? Why would I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life? I mean, look how life slash God has treated me. I don't want any part of that, and we, we confuse life with God, and we run. Well, for four weeks, we're going to be talking about this issue of running from God. And we're going to do this as we look at this little Old Testament book called Jonah, because Jonah is the most famous runner in the Bible. Now, if you haven't done it already, I want to encourage you to get your Bibles out and get them open to Jonah. And and Jonah can be a little hard to find, so I want to let you know it's legal. It's not called cheating to look it up in the table of contents. And if you need a hint, Jonah is between Obadiah and Micah. Does that help? If that's not good for you, it's on page 901 in my Bible, so I don't know if that'll work for you. But while you're turning there, you know, lots of people know the basic story of Jonah. It's a story of this guy that God gives a mission to, but he doesn't want to do it, and so he runs away, and so God puts him into the belly of a whale, and while he's in there, he lights a candle, and the whale throws him up on the shore, and he gets to be a real boy for the rest of his life. (laughs) Oh, wait, that's Pinocchio, right? Maybe you didn't know that Pinocchio is based on the life of Jonah. Now, some of you, uh, you're kind of going veggie tales right now, and you're going to get distracted with that. But truth is, many people just look at Jonah's story. It's kind of a kid's story. It's kind of a Sunday school story. But here's the reality. I want you to hear this today as we start. This is a deeply profound story, and it confronts all of us with some of life's biggest issues. I want to give you some insights into the book of Jonah before we dive in, pun intended. Let me give you some background, uh, kind of an overview, quick flyby will help you understand uh, where we're headed and what we're going to be covering. First thing is just to, to let you know about Jonah. He was a prophet in Israel probably in the years 800 to 750 B.C., and most likely Jonah is the author of this book that we're, we're studying If you look it over, you'll find there are four chapters and there are 48 verses. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. We don't know uh, much about Jonah beyond what's in this book. 2 Kings 14.25 is the only other mention we have of him. And so uh, just kind of put all that on your mental map. And and for the contents of the story itself, chapter 1, it tells us how God calls Jonah to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. But Jonah rebels, and he gets on a ship, and he heads in the opposite direction. And then God sends a storm, and then the sailors throw Jonah overboard, and then God prepares a fish that swallows Jonah. That's chapter 1. And then chapter 2, what we see is 
Jonah getting right with God while he's in the belly of the fish, and then the, the fish does spit him out on shore. And next week, we're going to learn a lot about how to get right with God when we've been rebelling. Chapter 3, what we see is Jonah obeys, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches what God told him to preach, and revival breaks out. Chapter 4, we learn clearly at this point why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, because he did not want them to repent. He did not want them to receive God's forgiveness. And as we look at this chapter, we're going to learn some powerful lessons about the love and mercy of God. That's the story of Jonah. And I just want to say this today as we are getting into this story. uh, I want to encourage you to read the book of Jonah. I want to encourage you to read it at least once every week. It's going to take you not more than 10 or 15 minutes to kind of work your way through it if you want to read it all at one sitting or you could read it a chapter a day. That doesn't even, you know, mean you have to read it every day of the week. But I would encourage you to read it at least once a week and let God speak to you. Let God use his word through his spirit to impact your life. You need to hear from God through his word directly. And I think as you do that, as you read, you will begin to see these these themes of Jonah. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about that. The theme of Jonah, first of all, is not the fish. People get distracted about that sometimes. A lot of people are more interested in what is going on inside the fish than what was going on inside Jonah, but the fish is only mentioned four times. And while I'm there, let me just say this, because a lot of people do get hung up on the fish, and maybe you're one of those people who find yourself thinking, that can't be true. I mean, how, how could anybody stay alive in a fish for three days? That's not possible. This has got to be a myth. Let me give you a response to that, okay? Um, here's my response. My response is, honestly, I wouldn't even put Jonah in the fish in my top 10 hardest things to believe in the Bible list. I, I, I wouldn't at all. Just think about it. What, what about Genesis 1-1? God created the universe, and the Bible tells us that he spoke the galaxies into existence. He created by the word of his power. And then you go to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 2. And we see that here God incarnates himself in the person of his son as a baby who grows up and heals the sick and who does all kinds of miracles, even raising people from the dead. And then he himself is crucified and then he himself is raised from the dead. I mean, why would you pick Jonah out and say this? That's impossible. I mean, if God created the galaxies with a word and if God could take all of himself and focus that divinity down into a baby why would we have any trouble believing he can pull something off like this see the real question is this is there a god who works in the world or not and was he present in jesus christ i mean if that's true then what happens in jonah should not be a big problem Now, some people say, well, you know, maybe it's supposed to be read as a parable, but here's the problem. It's not written that way. The names, the dates, the details, it's really written in the genre of history. It says, as the letter begins, Jonah, son of Amittai. It doesn't say, once upon a time, there was a guy named Jonah. Second Kings refers to Jonah as a real historical person. And then on top of all of that, most importantly, Jesus Christ thought of this story as actual history. Jesus referred to the historical events that we are going to study as a very important prophetic sign for his own ministry. You can check it out in Matthew 12, 41 and 
Luke 11, 30. I'm just going to stick with Jesus, I think, on this one. And so the fish isn't the theme. And Nineveh also isn't the theme. That this city that Jonah was called to preach to, it's only mentioned nine times. In fact, really, the theme of the book is not even Jonah. Jonah, his name is only mentioned 18 times. You say, well, what is the theme of the book? Here it is. The theme of the book of Jonah is God. This is a book about God. God is mentioned 38 times in four chapters, 38 times in 48 verses. God is the theme. This book is about who is God and what is God like and how does this God respond to people like us? How does this God respond to people who run? I want to give you a couple of verses in Jonah that are like like two mountain peaks that rise up above everything else. The first one is Jonah 1, 9, and it says this, Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. So this tells us Jonah is a book about God's greatness. God is great. God is sovereign. He made everything we touch and see and smell and hear, and he's in control of it all. Everything in this world must submit to his greatness, to his rule. Second mountain peak is in Jonah 4.2. Jonah again speaks, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So not only is God great, but God is gracious. God abounds in showing grace to undeserving sinners. You know, grace, grace is when God gives people what they don't deserve and he withholds from people what they do deserve. God is gracious See, Jonah is going to tell us that our God is a great God, a God who sovereignly rules over this world that he has created, and our great God is also a gracious God. He's loving, he's merciful, and patient. And out of that, what we're going to see is that when God brings someone like you into his family, you are there for good. You're there for good. And you may struggle, and you may rebel, and you may even run. But when you do, here's what you need to know. God's coming after you. He's coming after you in love. See, God, Jonah tells us, loves his children too much to let him get away. And so he goes after them. I mean, isn't that good news, great news? That is the heart of our God. We're going to see that in Jonah, that God pursues runners. And that's exactly where we're going to start in chapter 1. And we're looking at this first chapter today, and really the central idea of this chapter is our title, and it's this, you can run, but you can't hide. You can run, but you can't hide. Would you agree with me? God's children sometimes run, right? Well, when we run, here's some things that we should never forget, some things runners should never forget. There's three of them I'm going to show you today. Number one, when God calls, sometimes we run. So we just start with this reality that we are sometimes runners. Sometimes we rebel when God calls. Now, what do I mean by rebellion? I'm going to be clear. Rebellion is not ignorance. Ignorance is where you don't know what God wants you to do. Rebellion is not discouragement. This is not where you know, but you just need some support and encouragement to get it done. Sometimes we know, and sometimes we're trying, but we're still failing. We need encouragement. Rebellion, rebellion is where you know what God wants you to do, but you won't do it. God has made it clear that you refuse. You could write this down. Running is when we refuse to do what God clearly requires, whether that's in my marriage or with my kids or with my time or with my finances or with my lifestyle, whatever, whatever it is, God, friends, has written a book 
And he has told us what his will is in that book. And if you know what it says and if you don't do it, that's rebellion. That's running. And that's what Jonah does. Look at verses 1 through 3. The book begins, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. This is how we begin. God calls his prophet to do something very specific. There are two commands. You see them. One, go to Nineveh. Two, preach against it. But Jonah, Jonah doesn't want to do this. Why? Well, understanding why is crucial to us understanding this whole story, this whole book. Let me explain. Nineveh at this time was an ancient metropolis. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Maybe uh, you have heard of modern-day Mosul, right, where the battle against ISIS is going on even right now. That's where it's raging. That's Nineveh. That's where it is, where it was. Archaeologists have discovered ruins there. Uh, they estimate that Nineveh probably had around 150,000 people living in it. Doesn't sound too big to us today, but it may have been the largest city in the world at that time. Nineveh was big, but it was not only big, Nineveh was brutal. Uh, the Assyrian Empire was powerful and had conquered many, many lands. And they didn't just conquer, they brutalized people. When they attacked, they tortured. Now, all across the ancient world, they were feared. And we, we know this because we have all kinds of historical records from the Assyrians because they were not only brutal, but they bragged about their brutality. They were proud of it. Uh, we know that they would take prisoners of war and then they would skin them alive. And after they had stripped them of their skin, they would bury people in desert sand up to their necks. And then they would take their tongues out and drive a stake through their tongue into the sand so that the people would go crazy while they were dying of thirst. And then on top of that, all through the night, they would make them listen to Justin Bieber CDs. <laughs> well, I made that up, but the rest is all true. I mean, it's really hard for us to imagine the horror. These were people who bragged about it. I mean, they wrote it down on records we still have about raping and killing little girls. They bragged about how after their prisoners were dead, they would behead them, and they would stack all the heads up into these piles outside the city. They would make a pyramid of, of severed heads, and it was a sign to the city, this is what will happen to you if you ever oppose and resist us. Uh, there's another book in this section of the Bible by the prophet Nahum. Maybe you've read this. this his book is all against uh, prophecy against Nineveh. And in one of the verses, it's actually chapter 3, verse 1, Nahum calls Nineveh the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. That's Nineveh. Now, just to get a feel for where Jonah was when he got this command. Maybe you can imagine it this way. Imagine you had a family member in the Twin Towers in New York City on 9-11, and they died. And now imagine a few years down the line, God comes to you, and God calls you to travel to the Middle East and to go to ISIS headquarters and do that, and when you get there, you, you preach against them. This quick survey right now, how many of you would be interested in obeying that call? I didn't think so. Jonah rebelled. He ran. He said, God, I don't want to speak for you. I mean, I don't want to pay that price. It's too high. And notice what happens in verse 3. It says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. 
Now, again, you, you got to know some things. You got to know where Tarshish is because going to Tarshish is not like partial obedience. It, it's not like God told him to go to New York and he made it to Chicago. You know, he's almost there. He's part of the way there. I want you to look at this map to get an idea. Nineveh was east of Israel, about 550 miles. Yeah. <laughs> Tarshish is somewhere in Spain, 2,500 miles west. And it's even more than that. This is like the outer limits of the known world at this time. In other words, Jonah went as far away from God as he could possibly go. And every step of rebellion took him further away from the Lord. You know, we need to be reminded that rebellion against God is a very serious thing, that it involves a deliberate choice. I want you to notice from verse 3 how much effort it takes. There's seven verbs in this verse that reflects seven choices. First, he rose. In other words, he got up one day and said, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do what God said to do. Second, he fled. There's a verb, he fled. The NIV actually combines these two verbs into the phrase, he ran away. Third, it says he went down to Joppa. In other words, he had to travel across Israel to a seaport. Every step that he's taking, he knows he's running away from God. Every step is a deliberate uh, choice to disobey. And here's a principle. The longer our rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back. I mean, you can rebel against God for a day or a week or a month, but the longer it goes, the easier it is to stay away and never turn back. Someone said every, every day of rebellion is another plank kicked out of the bridge back to God. Fourth, notice that he found a ship bound for that port. Now, he found it. I don't know if he Googled it or he just got lucky. I don't know how it happened, but make no mistake. If you don't want to do what God wants you to do, you're always going to find a way to do what's wrong. Any of us, though, think, you know, if the door opens, it must be right. I mean, how many times have I heard people say to me, you know, Pastor Mike, everything is falling into place. This happened and that happened and that proves that God wants me to do this. That is so wrong. I have talked to people committing adultery, and they have said to me, well, I'm miserable in my marriage, and then I met this person. God just put them in my path, and I knew that was God showing me. He wanted me to be happy. What if that was your enemy laying a trap for you? I want to tell you something. If you want to run away from God, there will always be a ship that's ready to sail for Tarshish. You have an enemy, and his job is to ready the ship so that you can run. It's no surprise Jonah found a ship. Number five, uh, he paid the fare. I heard an old preacher a long time ago say, when you go God's way, God pays the fare. It works out really great. You go your way, you pay the fare, and it works out lousy every time. And we're going to see that in a minute. Number six, it says he went aboard. That's another choice. Number seven, it says he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Did you notice in verse three that two times, two times it says that he was running away from the presence of the Lord? Now maybe you're here today, and maybe you've run, and maybe you've convinced yourself that you're running away from the presence of the Lord. Maybe Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's an addiction and it's eating away at your life. Maybe it's a relationship and you know it's wrong. 
Maybe it's a lifestyle choice that you have been making and, and you're experiencing spiritual poverty as a result and you know, you know what you're doing is wrong and you've known it for a long time, but you haven't changed. You're still running. Maybe it's a positive action. Re rebellion isn't always doing the wrong. Sometimes it's just avoiding doing what's right. Maybe God's been pursuing you about your walk with him, about your prayer life, or, and he's been saying to you, this is the year I want you to draw closer to me and get serious in this area, and you, you just haven't taken the steps. You haven't responded to his call. Maybe it's something to do with, with your resources in your life, and God's calling you to generosity, and you're not listening to him. You're ignoring him. I'm just telling you, whatever it is, the longer, the longer your rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back. Harder it is to get back. And yet, in spite of that, the fact that you're here today is proof that God is still running after you, that he is still faithfully and lovingly pursuing you. One of the things that's interesting about running is that when we run, our thinking gets all crazy and messed up. I mean, let's think about Jonah. Why would Jonah think that he could run from the presence of the Lord. You know, a couple hundred years before Jonah, King David had written a psalm that many of us know. It's in our Bible, it's Psalm 139. I, I'm confident Jonah had heard it used in the public worship of the nation of Israel. It says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I, if I go to the lowest parts of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, if I fly to the uttermost parts of the earth, still, God, oh, Lord, you are there. Can you run away from God? Yes or no? Well, the truth is, in the end, no, you can't, because God is everywhere. But when you rebel and when you harden your heart against the truth, you know, you're, you're just thinking, your thinking just gets messed up. You start thinking that you can do things that you cannot do. And so Jonah is deceiving himself. Part of our deception sometimes is we give other names for it. We never call it running away from God. Sometimes we'll say we're running away from our church. And you know, a lot of times when people leave a church or leave church, and they blame it on people in the church. And, you know, we do in church, we, we don't always do the right thing. We don't always treat people the right way. But I want to tell you something that is never a reason to try to run away from God. We, we, we excuse ourselves. We run away from church. Sometimes we run away from our parents or we run away from our jobs or we run away from our marriage. Whatever it is, we're running away from God. Sometimes when God calls, sometimes we run. So what does God do when we run? Well, that's the second thing I want you to see. When we run, God always pursues. Verses 4 through 6 says, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And we see or hear God is relentless in his pursuit of us. When we try to run from him, he comes after us. He never lets up. I want to give some of you a heads up. God's going to come after you in this next month. 
He's going to absolutely come after you. I, I don't know why, but you may know why. He's going to come after you if you have been running. And it's going to be like this. You're going to find yourself saying to God, God, do we have to talk about this again? And God's going to say, yeah, we do. Because he's not going to give up on us. Now, think about this. Jonah is out on the Mediterranean Sea. He is headed west when God said go east. Is God going to just let him go? Is God going to say, you know, Jonah, you've really just not been the best prophet anyway. And I've actually been waiting for a chance to get a new prophet. I'm clearing some space on my payroll. Is that what he does? No. God is not done with Jonah. God goes after him. And that's what we see in verse 4. It says, then the Lord, or in one translation it says, but the Lord. It's God's response. And it says that God, literally, it says he hurled a great wind or a violent wind on the sea. Now, a lot of people might have called this storm a coincidence. Maybe even Jonah looked out before he went down below to go to sleep. He looked out on the horizon and saw this storm coming, and he thought to himself, man, that's bad luck. I can't believe that. Was this bad luck? No. God was not up in heaven saying, you know, someone needs to check the weather channel, see if we can get a storm over here maybe. Um, he wasn't hoping for a storm. He's the creator of the universe. The, the text says he hurled the storm. It's like he balled it up, wound himself up, and he threw it down. And God hits the strike zone whenever he throws something. It landed exactly where he wanted it to land right down on Jonah. Now, I was imagining this. This is not in the text, you know, and I was just kind of wondering if maybe this storm was like just like a mile wide and it's just crashing down on this boat, just this boat, only this boat. I wonder like if there are, there are some people like on the deck of the cruisers on their cruise ship, you know, five miles away going, what is going on over there? It's beautiful out here. I don't know. But Jonah was caught in this. He was in these massive waves because God always pursues. God always pursues. You know, sometimes when we set out in the opposite direction, God, God sends a storm our way. Someone said the same God who stills the storm in the life of submissive ones creates the storm in the life of his rebellious ones. Here's something you should write down and you should contemplate if you're running. When you run, it always impacts other people. Did you notice there were people around Jonah who were being impacted by his rebellion? Verse 4 again, it says, In such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. It says in verse 5, All the sailors were afraid. I mean, think about this. Sailors afraid in a storm. That's kind of like saying taxi drivers afraid at rush hour. I mean, these are sailors. This is their life. Why are they afraid? What does this tell you? It tells you this was some serious storm. In fact, the, the, the term great wind could be translated violent wind. Notice their response. It says, and each cried out to his own God. Now, sailors are notoriously superstitious. These guys probably picked up a new God in every port they visited, you know, just to cover the bases. And if, we know this. Sailors have always been superstitious. Why? Because the sea's dangerous. It's even dangerous today. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in the Bible, which is written in the context of the ancient world's culture, the ocean and the sea is not represented as something good. Nobody in the Bible ever wanted a beach house. In the Bible, the ocean, the sea always represents chaos. 
uncontrollable circumstances and, and fear. And we see this in a number of different places in the Bible. The sea was always dangerous. But right now, the sea is terrifying. These guys, these sailors, they're, they're all praying to every God that they'd ever heard of. But did you notice God's prophet is asleep? Now, don't miss the irony here. The man of God is asleep. The pagan idol worshipers are praying. The storm continues. It gets so bad, they throw their cargo in the ship overboard, which means that they are losing income, and they're going to lose it for a long time, but they do it because they're desperate. Jonah, we're told, is gone below deck. We're told that he lay down and fell into a deep sleep, and you read that in the story, it's almost like you want to kill him. I mean, here are these people fighting for their lives, and he's so self-centered and so self-consumed that he takes a nap. Maybe you've already noticed this, but there's kind of a play on words that's happening here in chapter 1, and we see it in that word down. Jonah's kind of full of stuff like this. That word down gets repeated several times in Jonah 1. Jonah goes down to Joppa, and then he goes down into the inner part of the ship, and then he goes down into sleep. And this, is, this word is kind of like the sleep of death. This is total spiritual disaster here. We're going to find out next week how Jonah goes down even farther below the surface of the ocean. What you're getting here is this picture of the downward progression of sin, and it starts up here maybe with small obedience, but it keeps going down. It ends in total spiritual disaster. Notice this, too. People living in rebellion against God sometimes spend a lot of time sleeping. Because sometimes sleep is the only relief you can find because as long as you're awake, the Spirit of God is pursuing you and you're just so tired, you just want to escape. And so in the middle of a life-threatening storm, Jonah's just taking a nap. While all these other men are struggling, Jonah is sleeping. You see this? At the root of rebellion against God, really, is just this rampant selfishness that impacts other people. It destroys those around us. Sometimes a son or a daughter rebels against God, and, and the parents are lying awake, weeping and praying, while the child sleeps soundly, oblivious to what's going on in the next room, the hearts that are breaking. I, I've sat in my office more than once over the years I've been a pastor, and there's been a husband and a wife across the desk from me, and there's been a marriage that's about to blow apart. And sometimes in these conversations, I have watched a husband, and sometimes I've watched a wife, and I'm thinking, they look bored. I've seen them stifle a yawn. It's like they're oblivious to the pain and the devastation that they are causing to the people who love them, the people around them. Maybe you're here today and you need to hear the message that Jonah hears in verse 6. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up. Now, knowing sailors, I'm guessing there were some additional words right there that Jonah left out because he was writing the word of God. Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And maybe God is saying to you today, wake up. What are you doing? Wake up. Where are you going with your life? Wake up, get up, get up. Here's the third thing that a runner should never forget. When God pursues he uses whatever he needs to get our attention. Have you ever noticed that? 
Look at verses 7 through 10. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And again, we see the sovereign greatness of God, that he's so sovereign, so powerful, he can control what to us seems to be the random casting of lots to focus the attention on his rebellious rebellious prophet Jonah. Verse 7, end of verse says, they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8, so they asked him, tell us, Who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? Where is your country? From what people are you? They're like machine gunning him with questions. They're all over him. We are going to the bottom of the sea for you. You are the problem. Who are you? What have you done? Verse 9, he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And they're like, what, 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 what? He said, um, I'm a Hebrew. No, no, no. What would what, you say the other part? He said, uh, I worship the Lord. No, 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 no. What was that last part? Um, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And the sailors say, what? Time out. You are running from the God who made the ocean by getting on a boat? <laughs> what is the matter with you? And it says, when they hear who this God is, verse 10, it says, this terrified them. Now, this is a different word. Verse 5 says they were afraid. This is a different word. They are going crazy. They ask, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. One, One translation puts it this way, that they said to him, how could you do this? And sometimes that's the best question to ask a runner. In view of who you know God to be, that he made everything and that you cannot get away from him. And in view of the fact that you know that the longer your rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back and that God is always relentless in his pursuit of us. How could you do this? What were you thinking? Look at verses 11 through 14. They are pressing Jonah for an answer. Verse 11 says the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? So why was the sea getting rougher and rougher? Well, because Jonah wasn't getting the message. God's turning up the heat. He's saying, Jonah, you're not going to win this. Verse 12, um, this is so sad. Jonah responds, pick me up. And throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, lest you think that Jonah is being a noble guy here, I want you to know he is not. What should Jonah have done? Oh, he should have poured out his heart in repentance to God. And even as he did there on the deck of that ship, the winds that were raging would have started to die all around him. Here's what's going on. What Jonah is really saying is this. Jonah is saying, I would rather die than do what God wants me to do. He is a prophet of God. How did he get to that place? Well, the longer our rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back. And finally, he finds himself at a place where he says, I'd rather die than do what God wants me to do. So God's going to say, okay, that's what you want. Not at all. Look at verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. I mean, how would you like to be in a rowing contest with God? 
I mean, this boat is not going anywhere. And what's really sad here is that these pagan men cared more for Jonah than he cared for himself. They're trying to save his life, but they couldn't do it. You see the relentless pursuit of God? Look at it again. Verse 4, violent storm. Verse 11, rougher and rougher. Verse 13, even wilder. Isn't that what God does in our lives? He just keeps turning up the heat until we get the message. Verse 14. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you please. I mean, what a great statement about God's sovereignty from some men who didn't even know him. I mean, at this point, they believed God more than God's prophet did, right? Verses 15 and 16. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the sea, the raging sea, grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So they throw him overboard, and the second that he breaks the surface of the water and sinks below, we're told the raging sea grew calm, the wind stopped, and the waves just ceased. And I think those satyrs are looking over the edge of the boat, looking down into the water, and then they look at each other, and I think the captain said, all right, guys, new rules. From now on, we are worshiping this God. Now, here's the last thing I want you to see. Don't miss it. God is so great. God is so sovereign that even when his servants rebel, he can use their rebellion to bring lost people into his grace. Do you see that? Those sailors, we're told here in these verses, those sailors become followers of Yahweh. Now, as we close, I want to say something to two groups of people. We've been talking mostly about runners. We've been talking about the Jonas, but I want to come back to the sailors, to those, those people who get caught up in someone else's storm. Jonah runs from God, and a storm comes, and we read that, and that makes sense. But what about the sailors? What did they do? They almost died. They lost their cargo, which was their livelihood, not because of anything they did, but because of what Jonah did, God's man did. They were caught in the fallout of someone else's bad decision, no fault of their own. And, you know, that's the reality for some of us. Maybe today, maybe you're not Jonah, you're a sailor. And maybe today, if that's you, you need to be reminded that if God is sovereign, then this also is true. There is nothing, nothing that has touched your life that hasn't first passed through God's hands. God is sovereign. I'm not saying that God caused it, but the Bible is clear at the very least, he allowed it. And this truth can do one of two things. It can cause a great crisis in your heart, or it can bring great comfort. And some of you right now, you're reminded and you're thinking of in this moment something horrible that has happened to you, maybe something you couldn't control. Maybe it happened to you as a child. You were abused. Maybe it happened to you as an adult. You lost a child or you experienced divorce. There were things that were done to you and they were evil and sinful and horrible. And you cannot get your heart and your mind wrapped around how a supposedly good and a, how a supposedly all-powerful God could allow that to happen to you. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that in all things 
God works for the good of those who love him. And God's word says a little bit farther on, Romans 8, 39, that there is nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want to ask you, what if these words are true? That God is working for our good in all things, and therefore, in all these things, we can be more than conquerors. You see, in the midst of things that could take you out and take you down, that could ruin you, that could end you, somehow God works and he uses those moments to do something good and bring something good. The Bible has a word for that. It's redemption, where God takes something horrible and evil and sinful and painful and he uses it for his glory and he uses it for your good. You know, I've been praying this week that you would walk out of here with a category in your mind, a category for God allowing horrible and evil and sinful things to happen in your life, and you not end up thinking, seeing God as horrible and evil and sinful. And I want to tell you this morning right now, you need a category like that in your heart and mind, because if you do not have a category for that, for God allowing horrible things to happen and him not being horrible, then listen to me. If you do not have that category, then you do not have a category for the cross. Because the cross of Jesus Christ, when he hung on that tree and he was brutalized by mankind, the only perfect person who ever lived, who did nothing, the cross was horrible and evil and sinful. But what did it accomplish? Did the cross serve our good? Absolutely. The cross brought about our salvation. You see, there is... There is nothing that has happened in your life that is outside of God's ability to redeem, even if you feel like you have lived your entire life in someone else's storm. Now, some of you, you're comforted by this, maybe because your crisis is sort of in the rearview mirror, and it's comforting to be reminded that God really is in control, that despite our storms and crises, he, he really does have the whole world in his hands, that nothing happens that's outside of his control, that nothing hits your life that first hasn't passed through his hands. That's good news to you. But I also know to some of us, we're not there yet, and we're still trying to get there. And you may not get there for a while. Sometimes the road that gets you to a place like that is pretty long. And I just want to say today, if you're not there yet, that's okay. But I want to also say, I think that this series can help you get there. So I want to encourage you to keep coming back. And if you're not there yet, I want to encourage you to pray a prayer. And it goes like this. God, I'm not sure I believe this yet, but would you help me to get there? That's a really good prayer. The Bible has it stated in another way, in another place. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I hope you'll get there soon. And then let's come back to Jonah, the second group. Some of you are in his place. And there's a place where you're running, where you're saying no to God. And some of you who are running in a storm because of that. And I just want to encourage you today, why not, why not today turn this place into the deck of a ship? Why not repent right now there in your seat? 
that storm in your life, I want to tell you today, that storm in your life is not there to pay you back for your sin. It's there to bring you back from your sin. You see, the Bible says, and this is the gospel, Jesus has already been paid back for your sin. Jesus went into the storm of God's wrath for you, and he paid it all. And that means that God's wrath is no longer in the storm. Only his love is in the storm. That storm that you're experiencing, not designed for retribution, it's designed for restoration. And so instead of continuing to fight, why don't you get down on your knees and just surrender to God? Just stop running. Just stop running. Why do you keep running? God only wants to bless your life. God only wants to show you his love. Why resist him? Now, next week, we're going to learn exactly how Jonah got right with God, and we're going to go over in great detail how we can get right with God. But I want to tell you today, you don't have to wait till next week. You don't have to be thrown off the boat, and you don't have to live in the belly of a fish for three days. Truth is, you can kneel down on a deck right now and you can get right with God. The Bible says you just need to confess your sin. You need to stop running. You need to turn from that sin. You need to let God cleanse you. You need to receive God's forgiveness. And he promises he'll always do that whenever we stop running. If you're running today, please stop. I want to encourage you now, if you bow your heads, we're going to pray together. We're going to talk to God about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. And Lord, thank you that you don't ever give up on us. Lord, you have begun a good work in us, and you have promised that you will bring that work to completion until the day of your son, Jesus Christ, that you will keep pursuing us. And so, Lord, right now we invite your spirit to place your hand on us and, and Lord, to touch the, the place in us where we've been resisting and rebelling. And, and would you just deal with that in our lives right now, whatever it is? Would you take away our resistance, Father? And will we experience your grace? Lord, help us to stop running whatever it is that we've been running from, running from you. Lord, if um, someone is here right now and the truth is uh, their running has involved never surrendering to what you've done for them through your son Jesus on the cross. In other words, Lord, they've, they've never come to know you. Father, I pray, uh, we pray that you would right now open their hearts to see the beauty of Jesus, your son, and his love for all of us, his grace for all of us, Father, that they would turn from their sin and repentance and they would place their trust in your son, Jesus, and receive his life, his forgiveness. Lord, may that happen even now. Would you grant repentance? Would you open hearts? Would you open minds? Bring people to salvation, Lord, even now we ask. Lord, we pray these things, we pray all the things that we are lifting up to you in the name, the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people together said, amen.